0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: It's important. I've, I feel anyway, to just remember what got you into video games mm-hmm. and play the stuff that you enjoy. And, you know, a lot of people are so negative about certain games. Yeah. Like Anthem or Fallout 76 most recently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Game Dev Advice,
0: the Game Developers Podcast. Your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John JP Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx 16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Budhead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup. Called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me, it's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call 224 484 7733 or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Today's guest is Chris Johnston, who started his career in video games back in 1994, writing about and reviewing them for Electronic Gaming Monthly Magazine. In 2007, he joined Adult Swim, where he helped shape the TV network's Adult Swim Games into a leading indie game and mobile publisher. His credits include Robot Unicorn Attack, Amateur Surgeon, Pocket Morties, and Headlanders. He's also the host of Player One Podcast, a weekly podcast about video games. Okay, here we go with Chris. Hey, everybody. Welcome. I've got Chris Johnson here today, and we're going to go through and talk some questions here about game development and the world of uh, video games. Chris, how's it going?
1: It's going great. Thanks for having me on uh, the show. This is always great to talk about game development. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Glad to have you on board, and that was great to have the uh, Twitter connection to suggest to you as a guest, and super excited to have you on tonight. Can you kind of talk me through your kind of current or slash previous role and kind of what you got going on right now?
1: Sure. Well, for 11 years, I was a producer and director of games creative at Adult Swim Games, hmm. and so I started there in 2007, and at the time, we were just doing Flash Games for the adultswim.com website. If you don't know what that is, it's uh, Cartoon Network's late night adult oriented comedy block. Yep. So they, they do a lot of really funny uh, shows, both live action and animation. And they wanted to do games that weren't necessarily based on show IP, but were just fun, humorous games in Flash. And I really liked that idea. And I really was a huge fan of Adult Swim content. Just I love the shows, love the humor. So I thought, that'd be a fun job to do. Right, right. uh, (laughs) Got hired and yeah, started there and was producer for all of their Flash game output from 2007 through most of 2011. Then we added more folks on the team and more producers came on and uh, we started doing more and more stuff, not just Flash, you know, as the industry changed and mobile games came on board we started doing a little bit of that and uh, started doing some steam games as well cool and when the consoles opened up to indie games and indie developers we became a publisher there as well so kind of started in flash and ended up doing pc and console stuff right which was a road I never would have thought I would go down. Starting uh, in 2007, it's it's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, and people are like, "What is Flash?" And it was like, "You know, back in the day, wow. and and it was Adobe, and there was all these security holes, but people made games in Flash, and they did. There was a market for it, and it was sure very popular.
1: A lot of talented people too. Like- oh, yeah. At Adult Swim, you know, I would hop on new grounds and congregate and play all the games that I could, and tried to find developers that would be a good fit, maybe for Adult Swim in terms of their style and their mm-hmm. their gameplay chops. So I ended up working with folks like Matt Thorson, who is more known for Celeste, and Pixel Jam, the guys who did the original Dino Run, and uh, they've done a, a number of uh, really cool games. We we did a. Bunch of games with them. Flambeer, we did a couple of games with them. So, I mean, I got to work with a lot of like really great indie gaming teams before they were <laughs> known. So it
0: was, uh, it was, it was awesome. It was back when they were playing for 50 people, right? You, you, you know, the uh, indie yeah. analogy of uh, playing a little dive bar and then they, they got bigger and grew. And um, no, that's cool to find be right. that, that beginnings and, and kind of seeing how it evolved and then, you know, moving on to, Trinket Studios and other games and going on to consoles Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So how did you get that first job working at Adult Swim?
1: Well, uh, a little bit of a long road there. (laughs) But for the Adult Swim job, part of it was back in 2002, they opened up their website and they had a message board on there. And it was a horribly run message board. they had no moderation (laughs) whatsoever. And I was a huge fan of the shows, like I mentioned, and right. I volunteered to be a moderator on their message board Okay, initially. And so I got to know people who worked at adultswim.com on the website and, you know, got to know all those folks and kept those friendships going even after I uh, stopped being a moderator on their site. So one of the guys who was an intern when I was a moderator ended up being their games guy in 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. and When he was leaving to go to Congregate, he got in touch with me and we talked off and on. And he knew that I was a big gamer and loved Adult Swim. And he asked if I would be interested in having his job. (laughs) And I said... Absolutely, hell, yes, <laughs> <laughs> why not? That sounds awesome yeah, so yeah that was that was my road in, really. I volunteered to be a moderator on the message board and got to know people and then five years later, there was a job opening that that I pounced on, so I know numerous people. You know, in the industry that were, and this
0: is going way back, but like you know, on CompuServe and they would be in different forums, and then people would see their posts, and you know, it would uh, evolve from there, and it would turn into like, hey, we need help with this mm. thing, and you would reach out to that network, and you would see people who were passionate and who knew about you know, gaming and what was going on, so they would respond to that, and it was a non-linear path into the industry, but it was very common that people worked hard in these different areas for free, and then. And it kind of evolved into a role. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I hadn't really made the connection, I guess, before, but not only is that how I got my job at Adult Swim, but I initially started as a writer back in 1994, so early 90s. This was when I was in high school. So I had looked at this magazine, Video Games and Computer Entertainment. Back in the early 90s. I remember that. Yep. It's a fantastic magazine. And they did a section occasionally in each issue covering fanzines, video game fanzines. And I happened to pick up an issue that had one of those columns. And I thought, you know, I'm not an artist. I can't program. I'm terrible at math. And (laughs) I'm not going to be an engineer or anything. So what can I do to get into video games? You know, maybe writing and reviewing video games. Maybe that's a thing that I could do there are these people doing it out there just for the fun and for the love of it. And maybe that's something I could do. So yeah, when I was 14 years old, I started up a video game fanzine and I would send issues to all the video game magazines at the time. So GamePro and EGM and video games, computer entertainment, and just, you know, I don't know what I thought would happen. Nothing really. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But you had passion, you know, exactly. I got video stores locally to like put them on their counter and give them away. It was kind of like a little thing. And at one of the magazines, Electronic Gaming Monthly, the owner of the company read my stuff. And that's how I got my first job doing magazine writing was at EGM when I was a junior in high school. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's great. Which wasn't a rare thing back then in the early days of video game magazines. There were a lot of really young people (laughs) because we're cheap labor, really. Yeah. And had the passion and drive to work crazy hours and whatnot. So, yeah, my first job in the industry, I guess, would be at Electronic Gaming Monthly. I started there in the summer of 1994. Okay. Just writing about games. And I ended up being at EGM until 2004. Wow. That's a heck of a run at a magazine. Chris Nicolella. Does that name ring a bell? It does. I worked with Chris Nicolella,
0: yes. Yes. Chris is a friend of mine. (laughs) Chris and I were together at NEC TurboGrafx on the hotline phones. And, you know, back in the day when there was no interwebs and you got stuck and you could figure out how to get by the emboss, you would call this number. And there was people sitting at phones getting the glories an hour and they would answer questions and help mm-hmm. people get by uh, Mr. Roboto and Keith Courage on level three. And <laughs> yeah, Chris and I have been friends for hell since the 89, uh, 90, something like that. And I remember he went to EGM and then he went out to San Francisco at GamePro and things like that. So there was that, he made the leap from TurboGrafx over to the, the magazine side and EGM was you know, for listeners that don't know, is you know, that was kind of the shit back in the day for like a magazine that would have great, you know, reviews and, and scoops and screenshots yep. and all that kind of stuff. I remember being Turbo TurboGrafx and Steve Harris would show up, and everyone would be like, oh, we have to press this guy and things like that, because <laughs> he, you know, has pull with the magazine. And yeah, it was a different time back then, but yeah, that was the lifeblood to the gaming community was those magazines. And you know, councils had their own Nintendo Power, and TurboGrafx had their own version of a Turbo Power magazine, and that was a way you know to communicate because there was no internet, and people wanted to connect and read and see reviews and see screenshots and things like that. So that was the lifeblood of reaching out to the players.
1: Yeah. And as a fan of EGM, it was a dream come true to work there (laughs) and suddenly like be in charge of some of that content and, you know, look at it like, what would I, as somebody who loves this magazine, loves video games, what would I want to read about? Like what aspect of this game would I want to see screenshots of? And you would, you know, kind of think of it in that way. And it was a lot different when the internet showed up. (laughs) because <laughs> yeah. then you no longer have the first screenshots of Crash Bandicoot 2 or whatever it was mm-hmm. like. And even in the early days of that clash between magazine and internet, we actually watermarked some of our the screenshots that we ran in the magazine, uh, which seems so lame now, but <laughs> we did it so that... Hear that movie industry? Yeah, right. If the internet scanned it, people would know where they got it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Exclusivities and stuff like that. That's right. <laughs> no, that's great. So looking back... Kind of like what you wish you had known when you'd started and being high school and stuff. Again, amazing that you did that. And I'm sure it was exciting that first time your article came out in print and you're like, hey, check it out. My article's here. And it's a different industry now. But what are your thoughts about like, I wish I'd known that?
1: Well, so when I was younger, and I guess I am still sort of the same way now, very opinionated when I was younger. (laughs) And I learned you got to pick your battles. (laughs) Sometimes things are not going to go your way, right right and you know don't die on little hills if you're on a team working on a magazine or on a game like you know it's not going to be you only calling the shots like it's team effort so I was a little hot-headed
0: <laughs> I've heard that from other people I've interviewed too and, and it's it's just part of the maturing process and you know understanding that not everything is the end of the world and stuff like that and yeah, exactly. Picking yeah. your battles and being like, all right, I'm going to save that for this bigger issue and not kind of uh, go crazy here about
1: that. But that comes with youth and it comes with passion, right? Yeah. It certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing is it's a big industry, but it's also a really small industry. Like totally. you mentioned, yep. Nicolella, and we both know this person. Like there is a network, like people know each other, like, mm-hmm. you know, Six degrees of separation, or even yeah. less than that. Two degrees like, of so. bacon, as I say. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like you got to be nice to people. <laughs> right. Yeah. I hope that I have been nice to people. That is one of the things in my professional career that I've tried to strive for, like always be as nice and as nurturing as I can be. But in this industry, like a lot of the people that I worked with at EGM back in the mid 90s are still in the industry now and working at other places. And you never know what my, what person might come back around. You, you know, yeah. you never know who you might be working with again or, mm-hmm. or what? Like one of the PR guys that I worked with uh, back at EGM was at Crystal Dynamics at the time. Steve Grohl is at Sony okay, and he's an account manager that works with a lot of indies and, It's just amazing that I've known this person for 20 years and working at Adult Swim, doing indie game publishing. He was also my contact at PlayStation. So it was like small world, right? Yeah. Small world, very small world. Yeah. And I think people think
0: like it's this giant industry and, and nobody knows anybody because there's billions of people or there's millions of people working in it. You know, it's really not. There is that network of people and, you know, what goes wrong comes around and, you know, treat people with respect, do the right thing and, you know, get your work done and reputation. You know, I've, I've told people numerous times, your reputation is key and it's based on, you know, not what you say, but what you do and it can make or break you down the road. Completely, You have to think about that. And hopefully you're a good person and you think about that and you just do naturally the right thing. But I've seen plenty of people that do lots of nasty things and then they're shocked looking for jobs, but it's like, it's a small industry. You got to be smart and you have to treat people with respect and act like an adult. Seems like common sense, but...
1: Sometimes it's good to have that reminder.
0: Yeah. yeah, Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I may regret this later. I should probably not do that thing or talk that way to that person.
1: That's right. Yeah. What about like
0: advice you would give someone like looking to get their first job, you know, here in 2019 and all that kind of stuff being it's such a different world right now?
1: Sure. Actually, I think a lot of the things, you know, like back in the day, like when I mentioned that I sent copies of my fanzine to the other magazines, I mean, I think you can do something similar to that in 2019 almost a lot easier, depending on what sort of role you want to get in in the industry. Like, game designers and producers for all the developers that you can possibly think of are on Twitter or on their games forums, you know, if they're running a a beta test or, have like a live ops game that you can contribute to. Like you can get in that way. If you become somebody who, you know, plays on public test realms or in beta tests and gives great feedback or, you know, does fan art for your favorite game series and you tag people who do art at the developer, you can get seen, you can get noticed. And in a lot of ways, I think it's much easier nowadays because you, You can find those people so much easier. You can find out what the names of those people are. Yeah. And I think that is probably a better way into the industry to, you know, prove that you have the enthusiasm, prove that you are ready to hit the ground running for free. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't do it with the intention of getting a job. Back in the day when I sent the fanzines to those magazines, I was 14, 15, 16. Like I didn't expect to get a job at that time. yeah. Like I was was your
0: passion, right?
1: I mean, yeah, it was, it was something I was passionate about. So it's even easier to start that nowadays and just get out there and do it. Well, you know, whether your favorite company is Blizzard or EA, or you really like a particular developer or an indie developer, like reach out to those people and help amplify their message. And, you know, maybe something will come from it. Maybe it won't, but, I think it'll also give you a lot of pleasure just to be that sort of booster of something that you love in gaming. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, Twitter's amazing right now, right? Like every week or two in my current role at level X I'll be like look at this person on Twitter and the stuff they're doing with shaders let's reach out to them you know and, yeah. and, and it is just such a great way to connect and and see what people are doing in a very visible way versus you know mailing things and and snail mail and all that kind of stuff that Twitter is such a, a great resource so you know any aspiring game developers you know you need to be on Twitter you need to show what you're doing talk about what you're doing use the right tags reach out to people and yeah, it's a great resource.
1: Yeah. Like a lot of people, a lot of people in positions that could, you know, get your next job are looking at screenshot Saturdays. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, they're probably just like you and read Twitter just like you. So yeah, that stuff's important. Yeah. What about like advice you would
0: try and give someone in the production space like yourself? Like what ideas do you have around producing and production and, you know, working in that capacity?
1: Yeah, I I guess, you know, the term producer can mean so many things, depending on where you are, like at Adult Swim, since we were a publisher and not a game development studio, we didn't do any development in-house. It was different for me because I was more often than not interfacing with. A producer or the developers directly, but not like in charge of schedules or budgets or things like that. But you know, going into project management or taking some project management courses is always a good idea. Yeah. Even for your own sanity when working on whether it's games or anything else, really like to have an arsenal of techniques you can use to manage your time, manage a project is important to have. I think maybe especially in game development. Whether you're a team of one or or a couple of people, or at a bigger company, like it's important to have those skills, I think. But in terms of what I was doing as a publishing producer, oftentimes it was plain builds and delivering feedback, right. notes on. Uh, Yeah, gameplay notes and whether that's on builds or on game design documents or pitches. So in terms of getting started with that, like I'd pick a game that you played that maybe you didn't like and start writing your feedback as if you could speak directly to the developer and impact how that game was put together before it came out. Because I, th- I think it's a different way of thinking from like the consumer level where you're like, this game is good. This game is bad to think about it on a different level. Like, wh- okay, what aspects of this game are good? What aspects are this of this game are bad? What things inside of that would be like prioritized to change? Like if I could come up with a list of 10 things in this game that I would change, like what would that be? And it's just an exercise for yourself really. But... Having that skill, I think, is important if you're going to be a producer, whether it's on the development side or on the publishing side, to be able to give feedback and give actionable feedback, too.
0: Right. Being on the developer side of production, it was always great to work with you know, publishing producers that gave great feedback, they gave constructive feedback. You could carry a conversation with them and understand what their points were. And it wasn't just like this laundry list of 9,000 things to change, but it was prioritized. (laughs) And sometimes you have to push back, like, all right, there's 80 things here in this list. What are the must have changes? What are the, you know, would be nice to have changes and things like that so that you knew what to do? Because you're always limited by time and resources, uh, scope and things like that. So being able to communicate that, being, you know, constructive.
1: One of the things I like to do with feedback is, you know, kind of depends what phase of production the game is in. I think right. early on, more notes is better. Later on, you want to prioritize and sort of keep it short because at that point, you're probably talking about changes that will cost time. Yeah. And weeks, if not months. Budget. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So what I like to do is, you know, not say you need to change this in this way, but rather say, I I see this area as an issue. Like, what do you think we could do to, you know, the difficulty ramp is a little tough in this particular area. What can we do? What can we adjust here? Rather than suggesting specific adjustments because on a development team I think the game designer or people closer to the work than a publishing producer or producer will want to maybe weigh in on those decisions. Right. <laughs> and ultimately you want everybody's buy-in on changes because everybody's working to the same goal. Everybody's paddling in the same direction. You want everyone to feel ownership of the end product. You don't want to be the dictator. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah like this is all effed up and do it
0: this way doesn't fly well with developers. But yeah, it's kind of like, hey, there's a problem here. You know, I have some ideas. What are your thoughts for how we can address this? And then yeah. it's a more collaborative, you know, discussion at that point. And people don't get their fisticuffs out and, and start getting defensive. Yep. And it's really about communication and making a collaborative experience versus a threat from the publisher and change this or else we're not going to pay your milestone and all that kind of stuff. Because it. Um, oh, God, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I've seen that, and it's like, oh, uh, it's like, oh, great, you guys moved the goalpost again, and now we're not going to get our milestone. Great, <laughs> yeah, uh, right.
1: I tried my best not to be that producer. Right. Really? (laughs) I think I avoided it.
0: No, that's good. That's good because we're and probably are still some out there and the producers that are more about having a dialogue and being collaborative versus dictatorship. It always works better in the long run for the game because nobody likes to just be in that environment where they're just being told what to do. And it's more like, how can we solve this problem versus here's my idea, do it this way. Or you don't get your milestone and make payroll.
1: Yeah. And that idea, that solution could come from anywhere, really. It could come from the producer. It could come from the developers. It could come from QA. And it's important to realize that. And if there is like a major issue to, you know, huddle up and get everyone involved, if it's something that warrants that. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. What's been,
0: say, like one or two of your favorite games or projects to work on?
1: I have a couple, but I'll narrow it down to two. (laughs) One was Robot Unicorn Attack. I don't know if you remember this game. It was a Flash game originally that Adult Swim did in February of 2010. And it's this sort of endless runner game, side-scrolling, where uh, you play a robot unicorn jumping from platform to platform. And as the game goes, the platforms move faster and your jump speed moves faster. And it's all set to the song Always by the band Erasure. So that's like Mm. a mid-90s track. And the visuals on it are very Lisa Frank, very neon styled. And this particular game, the developer we were working with, Scott Stoddard, had worked with us before. He'd done like two, three games with us before. And they had all been great, but they hadn't really done well. They weren't that popular, but they were they were really fun games. And Scott was just a great graphic designer and animator. So they always looked great. And he worked at Disney while he was doing these Flash games for us. And he got a job at Chair Entertainment and said, okay, I can do one more game for you, but it has to be a four-week development cycle. Wow. And after that time, I can't, do any more work for us <laughs> the door so, is closing the door is closed <laughs> hmm. and we were like okay like that sounds good because it was the end of our year where we had some budget left over and he pitched this game Robot unicorn attack for a four-week cycle and i think the budget was 25 or 30k wow uh, at the time and he did it in four weeks so this sort of endless runner cannibalt style uh game he worked on for four weeks and we got builds every week and i played them and gave him feedback about halfway through, he'd never intended to actually use the erasure song <laughs> in the game. Right. It was a placeholder. But as he delivered builds and as we played it, we were like, this song is as much of the game as everything else. Like, it has to be a part of the game. And he had a sort of sound like inspired by track, uh, Waiting in the Wings, that we got a couple builds. Yeah, as a fallback, music. something like that. Yeah. As a fallback, just in case. But. Working at Adult Swim, it's Turner Broadcasting, you know, we have music lawyers that (laughs) can see if we can license it. Talk to other lawyers, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Talk to other lawyers (laughs) and agents. People call my people. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. And they, they did, and we got the rights to use the song in the game, and basically, he took all of December to do the game, and January 1st, he couldn't work on it anymore. And there were a couple tweaks that he had to do in the meantime, but then on like February 4th in 2010, we published it. And this game, which I was addicted to in the office, I thought it was great. Everybody around me was addicted to it too. We had uh, the internet found it and it went viral. Back wow. In 2010, and I was at a concert with my wife, looking at the analytics for the page that the game was on, right. and it was going crazy. <laughs> it's like suddenly it was going up by tens of thousands of views per minute. Like it was, like, it what was is going insane. on? Yeah, yeah, what has happened here? And it became a phenomenon sort of overnight, really. And then we did a mobile version of that without the original developers' uh, input, and did some sequels as well. A whole brand then at that point. A whole brand, a whole franchise. Yeah, before we project. That was done in a month (laughs) by one developer. That's very cool. That was a really unique project. Yeah, lightning in a bottle, right, as they say. Lightning in a bottle, Yeah. yeah. So a very last minute project. And then the other one is I got to work with Double Fine Productions on the game Headlander. And the director there, Lee Petty, who worked on stacking and is currently doing RAD just a really super smart guy. <laughs> like, cool. And I've been a fan of Double Fine for a long time. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something there. Like Double Fine does stuff that's humorous. Adult Swim, we publish games that are, you know, have same the same kind of humor and tone as Adult Swim TV. Like maybe there's something there. Yeah. There could be a fit, right? Yeah. And we approached them initially to see if they wanted to do a Flash game based on Rick and Morty. Wow, I had a couple of friends who worked at Double Fine at the time and thought, you know, would this be of interest at all? That project wasn't. They weren't into doing Flash games, which is totally understandable when I asked. But I kept in touch with people there and they had a game called Headlander that they pitched to us. It's a 1970s science fiction inspired Metroidvania style game. And I remember watching the pitch video and coming out of there. It was during GDC when I saw it and coming out of Double Fine's office, just like jumping up and down. Like (laughs) we have found a game that is so perfectly adult swim. Like, (laughs) right. Green light. Go, go, go have to green light this. Yes. (laughs) We have to do anything in our power to get this done. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, it was the largest budget that we'd worked with. So that was a little bit scary. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was working with Double Fine, and it was, a, it was just a really interesting process to work, having worked with indie devs and smaller teams and then work with Double Fine, who was so on point and buttoned up. Like, their design documents were great. Like, their build notes were You know, half dozen to a dozen pages long uh, PDFs Hmm. of exactly what had changed in each build, and I had never seen documentation like that before. Wow! (laughs) You're like, here's the new build, version X. Don't give us too much feedback, and it's like. With some developers, you have to guess what was new. Did you change this? (laughs) This seems different. But with Double Fine, they documented everything. And that was just amazing. Yeah, (laughs) It was just another dream come true to work on a game with them. They were so open to feedback and just great to work with. Everybody there, fantastic. And to the point of, you know,
0: build notes, it's always a pain in the butt to do. But at the same time, it's super useful because it kind of sets the table right on the publisher side. So you're like, okay, okay. They know this is broken. Yeah, the art's going to change for this later. I'm not going to comment on that. So it it just saves a lot of energy and potential aggravation by, you know, preemptively saying what's going on in this build versus like, yeah, I know that. Yeah, we know that. Well, we're going to change it. Ah, why are you bugging me about that? You know, build notes are huge for uh, diffusing those kind of situations. Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224 484 7733
1: or on the gamedevadvice.com website. Such an important step because, I mean, not only are build notes going to be useful for the person who's your main contact but at a publisher that person whoever that is is going to get questions from other people maybe higher up definitely about other issues that hopefully were covered in the build notes mm-hmm. But if you have to guess what's changed or what's coming or things like that, it's just easier to put together a document. Here's what's changed. Here's what we're working on in the next milestone. Like here are the known issues. Right. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be a lot. I mean, the longer, the better, depending on you know who you're working with. I think uh, if you're a developer and you get to know the producer that you're working with, you can probably ask them what they prefer. Yeah. And see how things go there and just see how that working relationship evolves, whether they need the long laundry list of changes or not. Yeah. I do think it's important, even if you're a single developer and if you're working with a publisher, to do build notes.
0: Yeah. I've been in situations where you're a part of a company, but there's also a a publishing arm and you all get paid by the same company. It's still beneficial to have those build notes just for internal use within the company to say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what's changed. Here's what we're working on. Yeah, we know this is broken. What are your thoughts about this? Stuff like that. It always just makes things smoother and you just got to take the time. It's always a hassle, but it pays off greatly, you know, down the road when people are looking at builds and they're making comments and stuff.
1: Absolutely. And as a producer too, like I often would go through previous build notes to just refresh my memory. Like when I worked at Adult Swim, I was juggling multiple projects at once. And sometimes I wouldn't remember, you know, whether this is something that we had discussed or if it was a known issue from a prior build. And I'd look back on prior build notes and game design documents and all that. Yeah. Makes sense.
0: Okay. So kind of shifting gears, like, what are you curious about right now in the industry? Like, what are your thoughts? What's going on?
1: Changes, concerns? I don't I don't have too many concerns. I think I'm very interested in how live service games change how game development is done. Mm. And you know, not even thinking about games like Fortnite or Apex Legends or or that stuff. Yeah. I'm more interested in how you have games like Dead Cells or Hollow Knight or indie projects that are getting updates after release that are meaningful to not only the people who are playing, but, you know, meaningful amount of work for the developers that have to do that or yeah. that to do that. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how indie developers embrace that. And I think Hollow Knight, Dead Cells, those are examples of developers that have but you know you think about developers who are a single person or a very small team working on the same game for multiple years then the game comes out and you're like oh okay it's out I'm done and then it's not only games that are in early access now that get post launch feedback and how can you address those things from from real paying users mm-hmm. and perhaps add more content to keep those people who are playing even more invested in your game it's going to be really interesting to watch <laughs> how that unfolds. Right. Yeah, we are on a
0: cusp of a new kind of platform uh, revolution and kind of seeing how, how this all works with the Google
1: announcement and all those
0: kind of things. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Even single player story-based games, like narrative games, like Assassin's Creed Odyssey are getting updates, like almost constant updates, mm-hmm. either content or bug fixes and that's really the path for every game project, whether it's indie or or AAA. What does that post launch window look like? And it's been really interesting to watch games that probably started development not even thinking about that stuff. Yeah. That have had to turn into that. Right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) In days past, it was once it was on the cartridge, you were done, right? And um, that was it. Yeah. yeah, And it, it created for more more kind of stress and pressure going up to that knowing that you know when the cartridges or the CDs come out and pre-online that that's what you have you have to live and die by that. but it was also you know refreshing at the sense that it's done you know, it's out and we can't really change it now at this point, unless there's some colossal screw up that it's a finished game. Now it's just kind of the beginning in a lot of ways. It's live services and what are you doing for, you know, retention and player feedback and of course bugs, right? Because there's always bugs. And yeah, it's, you know, everything's really live service now to different degrees.
1: Yeah, everything. Every game is a living product, whether yeah. you want it to be that way or not. <laughs> not. Yeah, exactly. What about, you know, AR and VR?
0: What are your thoughts about that? You know, there's the Quest that came out and Magic Leap and all those kind of things. What are your thoughts about those type of platforms?
1: AR, I think, has struggled to really find its reason for being I think I have yet to find an AR game that has really like captured my attention <laughs> other than other than like a five minute, oh, this is cool. Okay, I'll turn off the AR mode now. Like yeah. I think everyone in mobile, especially, points to Pokemon Go as like, oh, right. we should do an AR game because Pokemon Go is so successful. But if you can't think of another example, than yeah. Pokemon Go, <laughs> like why are you going to put resources into an AR project? And that's not to say that there won't be a good AR thing. It's been interesting to watch like, you know, Apple keynote events where they show somebody playing uh, an old arcade game on a, an empty table, or there was like a version of Galaga. I think that was multiplayer. That was an AR that looked interesting. Yeah. I don't even know if that came out. <laughs> 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 like I saw it on stage. And yeah. That was the where'd it go? last thing I heard about that. <laughs> right. I think both AR and VR are still in their early days. I think VR is obviously more ahead than AR because now we've gone through several hardware revisions and it seems like the good VR games that were on the first headsets are being brought forward to whatever the new thing is because you have new people coming into the vr ecosystem all the time that haven't played beat saber or haven't played super Space hot Card or or super hot yeah exactly so a lot of those games that were there early on are being brought forward and that's fantastic because you have all this great vr content that can move forward to new people and hmm. uh, new technologies like the quest being yeah definitely Wire-free. I mean, I always felt the wires were the worst. Yeah, VR. I get motion sickness super easily too, so I avoided putting on VR goggles for a long time because I knew that I just it wasn't going to agree with me. But then Mm -hmm. the Five came out. I tried a demo of that that really changed my mind about VR. But I always felt that you know, if Adult Swim was going to do a VR game, that it had to be the right VR game, and we did Rick and Morty Virtual Recality with Alchemy Labs and great developer of, of Job Simulator and Vacation Simulator. and they're, they're in they're Austin, awesome. right? Are they in, are they in Austin? They're in Austin now, yes. Yeah, okay. But I had been talking with them for a long time before they even did VR stuff. Just They were an interesting developer that had a lot of great gameplay ideas and humor. And Justin Royland, who's one of the creators of... Rick and Wardy is super into VR. Cool, and he hooked up with Alchemy, and they pitched us this game, and you know we couldn't say no to it. <laughs> like it was too good of a match. Yeah, you gotta do this. And so yeah, we we did end up doing a, a VR, and I thought that was perfect. Like it was the right match of a great concept with a great developer and an IP that made sense. The IP was behind it, right? Not like trying
0: to shoehorn something that the IP wasn't uh, embracing or anything like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the show creator wanted to do it more than anything. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, all right, no, so, we'll do it. Fantastic, really. You see so many VR games that feel like tech demos and that's, it feels like a bit of growing pains now where we're getting to the point where things hopefully will break out of that shell, break out of that tech demo shell and really become or feel like full games. I think we've got yeah. Astrobot on the PlayStation VR that feels like a full game. We've got a, a you know a lot of good examples, but hopefully there's going to be more of that, and hopefully the companies that were doing VR and funded VR projects stick with it because I do think there's something there. Yeah, it's just a matter of the hardware and convenience factor catching up.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of friction points, right? It's like, ah, uh, the great. Okay, do you have a $3,000 computer? Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, do you have a $600 this? Okay. Do you have the space for this? Okay. Maybe fourth time you have to replug in the cables because it doesn't work. And, yeah, you know, it's just, it feels, it reminds me very much of the 80s and 90s where it was very hobbyist in the sense that most people would just be like, screw that, I, I don't have time or patience for that. And only there was a subset of people that would put up with all of those barriers that are put up to actually do it. But now, you know, with the Quest out, you know, with that price point and, and not having all the cables and yeah, I know it's a Snapdragon chip and you're not doing the same thing as, as you can on and the Vive, but just that accessibility, that price point and not having to have all those barriers is exciting, you know, to me as someone
1: that's kind of seen it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Like, you know, it's going to be something. <laughs> but it's just going to be, what is the hardware platform that really captures people? And I've seen Oculus Quest commercials on Hulu and they're promoting the heck out of it. So yeah, that's great. hopefully it brings new people in and they get good content and uh, hopefully they aren't going to let their headsets collect dust and <laughs> right. then VR will really be something. Yeah. Take it to the next
0: level and um, take it out of the basements and take it to more mainstream type audience and yeah. things. So this is the, uh, tell me a funnier or odd story from working in the industry. And I'm sure you've got a lot of them, but like, what would you like to share and uh, you think is funny and relevant and people like to hear about?
1: Well, so I, I mentioned that part of the reason I got started in the industry was this magazine, video games and computer entertainment. And they had that fanzine section in there and that it's a small industry. And so the editor-in-chief of that magazine. Andy Eddy. Ah, Andy Eddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, he's been in the industry forever. Yes. <laughs> Just kicking around yep. uh, either as a journalist or a consultant or uh, at home we had him do the mock reviews for us, which is, you know, something that publishers sometimes do for products that they're not sure on or that they want to get a an early read on what the reviews might be. Yeah, We worked with Andy on that. And then Andy now works at PlayStation. And I had a meeting with him at E3 a couple of years ago. And it was just funny. It's like now I'm sitting at a table talking about Adult Swims games with the guy who was the editor in chief of the magazine that got me into this industry. Yeah, full circle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like it goes full circle like that, right? Yeah. Like you you never know who you're going to meet or befriend or, or whatnot. And that was just like a really, interesting moment for, yeah. for me. And I had, to, I had never told him that, you know, the reason why I'm in this industry is because of your magazine. And that, it was fun. That was a fun, a fun meeting and old industry people mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about games.
0: Right. Yeah. And I'm sure there was some point where you're like doing the business stuff and then you just kind of like sit there for a second, and go, go into it. whoa, wait a minute. You <laughs> know, if I could have fast forward 20 years from now, I never would have guessed this, but. Yeah, that's the way the industry works. And, you know, a lot of ways life works, right? So it's it's kind of cool to experience those moments and just kind of think about that. And again, to go back to the, uh, you know, don't burn bridges and, you know, don't be a jerk type stuff. So that, mm-hmm. that all makes sense.
1: Yeah, when I started, I was, you know, not even thinking like, what is going to happen to me five years from now, right. 10 years from now, like, not even anywhere in my mind. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's my really. 10 year plan. I, I wrote it out. I don't have that kind of thing. Like Yeah, right. <laughs> I am not a planner in that way. So to think that, you know, 25 years on, I'm still in the industry and still in touch with all of these, a lot of these same folks is just crazy. And I think, you know, people just starting in should think that way that, you know, if you, if you want to try to be in, in it for the long haul, like maybe people you're sitting next to will be people you're still working with in some form 20, 25 years on. Yeah, myself personally, I'm, I'm closing in on this
0: thirty-year mark from being at the Turbo Graphics at the launch there back in August of '89, and it it is crazy just to think of where the path is twist and turn, and people that you've worked with, and you know people that are still in the industry going back then, like you know Chris or Brad Delaney who's over at Zynga, and um, you know other friends of mine that thirty years ago, you know sitting there on a hotline phone answering questions, could you ever have guessed, you know, fast forward that um, yeah, you'd still be in the industry and, and the things you've done and seen and experienced over those uh, three decades would happen. And um, it's just kind of uh, cool and surreal and rewarding on different levels, I guess.
1: Now, I'm sure you saw the announcement last week of the TurboGrafx-16 yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, yeah. What are your thoughts on that?
0: <laughs> Turbo folks always have kind of a chip because it's like, oh, there was this war between these two 16-bit consoles, and it's like, yeah, yeah, what about the TurboGrafx, jerks? You know, like, we were out before the Super Nintendo, and way before the Super Nintendo, and actually before the Genesis. I remember we launched, and, you know, we had 12 games out, and the Genesis later launched with six, and... We were kind of forgotten about, although we had done a lot of pioneering things, you know, with five player and the uh, portable uh, color Turbo Express and all those kind of things. So, oh, yeah. The Turbo is kind of like this, I don't know, forgotten platform that was actually there, even though people would argue it wasn't true 16 bit or not because they were double Xing the processor, blah, 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 whatever. So, it's smart. And I'm glad they're doing it because there is, you know, success with these consoles being relaunched. Going back to you know the original PlayStation and then uh, Sega and stuff like that. So I saw that on Twitter, thanks to my friend Josh Sway. And I need to look more into that. And I've even thought about, you know, having a podcast come out there in August, late August to kind of tie into the 30 year launch of the TurboGrafx because Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. We had like Mm -hmm. a mini reunion. It was kind of crazy. There was um put a thing on Facebook and I tracked down there was about 12 or 14 of us at a bar restaurant that was literally across the street from NEC down in Wooddale, Illinois. And some of those people I hadn't seen in almost 30 years. And it was it was cool to see everybody and kind of talk about what they were doing now and the old days and answering phone calls and all those crazy, some of the crazy calls we would get from people. And yeah, I'm thinking it's sneaking up here with the uh, August of this year coming up with the 30-year anniversary. So yeah, it's great to see that. My friend, Johnny Turbo, uh, John Branstetter is been over in Japan in a while, and he was at Turbo Technologies Incorporated when when Hudson Soft bought Turbo Graphics and uh, right. tried to revive it. And there was a whole advertising campaign built around brand called Johnny Turbo, and and he's trying to re-release or he is re-releasing some some of those old classic games. So yeah, I, I think it's really cool that people see that history and, and and see you know how difficult games used to be back then, and kind of see that evolution of you know, the industry and, and what sprites and 16-bit games used to look like. And wow, that's parallax scrolling and all that kind of stuff. Evolution of of the art form and of, you know, entertainment.
1: Yeah. And of console games too, where you you had to do, mm-hmm. you, you had so little to work with really. Yeah, yeah, You had to work within the constraints. Like it wasn't like developing a game for PC where you could just, you know, yeah. decide that the, you need the high spec the stuff to run. It's like you had to work right within constraints and people... You know, wrung a whole lot of performance out of some of those oh, yeah. Old yeah. consoles, especially like uh, looking back. It's just kind of amazing what they achieved there mm-hmm. with a uh, small team and knowing that hardware. So
0: yeah, yeah, you know, working on 16-bit, it was always you know, it's a 16 or 32, you know, megs, and trying to cram all that in there because the publishers never wanted to go bigger, right? Because their cost of goods <laughs> would skyrocket, so they'd always push to do the smaller size, and then it would you'd push back because it would hamper your, your development. And, you know, the poor audio team at the end would be like, yeah, you got 400K, make make it sound great. And uh, <laughs> everything was just like, everything was so allocated and everything was so not just kind of, um, you know, very conscious of how you're using your space and it wasn't uh, unlimited. And there was always challenges and even fights about space for different parts of the game and things that you just don't have nowadays. So,
1: yeah. At one point it was even a marketing bullet like 32 meg cartridge yeah yeah <laughs> that's the reason you should play this game because of the size <laughs> of the cartridge content could suck but it's it's on a 32
0: meg and it costs us a lot of money so buy yeah, our five, game five a- <laughs> yeah i remember doing a magazine interview and it was like yeah talking about this new bonk and it's four times the size of the last one i came from but um <laughs> kind of pulled that out of my whatever but um yeah, it was it was a different time back then, and there was just that whole experience of you know opening the the box and putting it in, and you know experiencing firsthand without maybe knowing anything other than maybe uh, reading a magazine about what the game was going to be. And um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was it was kind of a magical time, in some ways.
1: That's true. More people are jaded right now with the interwebs and all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't know about you. I try to stay enthusiastic about games. I think it's very difficult sometimes because Twitter sometimes is so negative. Totally. And it's important, I feel anyway, to just remember what got you into video games Mm -hmm. and play the stuff that you enjoy and... You know, a lot of people are so negative about certain games, yeah, like Anthem or Fallout 76 most recently. Right, yeah. There are people who worked really hard on those games and not to discount the fact that those games shipped with problems. Like that's probably a different discussion. Right, right yeah. But you know, there're also people who really like those games and yeah, I can look past the issues that those titles had and it's just important to remember that not every game has to be made for you and that's okay.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and try to stay positive. <laughs> yeah. And, and again it's a live service and I'm not happy with that now, but maybe when they do an update and they change this thing, then it'll be more to my liking. But yeah, people love to hop on that bandwagon of negativity and you know, it's it's easy to be a critic versus actually make this stuff yeah
1: it's true and it's funny like i was a game reviewer for many years and was very critical of of many games and it's strange to be on the other side of that <laughs> yeah, right it was interesting when we, you know we shipped our first console game to like press and really be on the other side of that where like right you know what are people gonna think of this like yeah. <laughs> uh oh here we go Fuck off. yeah <laughs> Back in the day, I was really rough on some games. Now it's coming around. That damn
0: karma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what about, what's a game that you're playing or excited about right now? Like, what has your interest?
1: Uh, I I mean, I try to play a lot of games. I think it's easier now to, easier than ever, really, to like sample a lot of games because hmm. now you have services like Game Pass and... Yep. Uh, PlayStation Plus and the yeah, Epic Game Store that gives you free games. You can try a lot of things, Steam's right? got stuff on sale, and yeah. So uh, there's just too many games out. <laughs> so many games. So not many enough hours games. in the day. There really aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a game called Sea of Thieves that Rare produced. came out last year. And this is another story where like the initial product was not well received by the press Mm -hmm. and i really enjoyed the game when it launched i liked it from a game design perspective because their philosophy was we're going to give you the tools in the game to create your own pirate adventure Mm -hmm. and what you do with those tools is up to you like you can go attack other ships you can be friendly you can give other people treasure i really appreciated that game design that was
0: sandbox type thing where it's like "Here, here you go
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Almost with no, I mean, they, they had goals in the game, but they were very rough and a lot of reviewers, you know, and rightfully so, I mean, they weren't wrong that it was a repetitive game, but it's the first time I've played a a single game for over a year. Wow. You know, multiple days a week. Like I've had games that I've been addicted to, but this Mm. particular game, see if (laughs) Thieves, takes the cake where, I have a regular crew of friends, all of whom I've met from playing the game uh, that get together, you know, a couple nights a week and play. And it's it's just unlike any game experience that I've had before. And yeah, it was, you know, a 50 or 60 on Metacritic, like not well received. But something about that game design was so good. And I, you know, I really appreciated the fact that Microsoft didn't just pull the plug on it and that uh, the sort of new era of live service, hey, you know, you can fix your mistake or not even a mistake, but you can add things like you can react to the feedback of reviews. And, you know, I'm sure when Sea of Thieves was first started as a project, that wasn't even in the car. It's like, yeah, yeah. they're going to do this game and ship it and then also continue to work on it for multiple years. But, you know, both as a game enthusiast and as somebody who's you know, been in the industry, I just really, really appreciated the way that that game evolved and changed and added things. And, you know, the week after launch, they tore up their entire roadmap plan for updating it and redid everything based on how Hmm. many people were playing and what the reviews were. That's smart. Yeah. It's super smart. And Like, looking at other games that have struggled similarly since Sea of Thieves came out, I think, you know, maybe that's something in game development that's going to be a thing. Like, sometimes you have to change your plan (laughs) based on that customer feedback. And, you know, I think No Man's Sky kind of proved it uh, years before this that, you know, you can have a bad or rocky launch, but you can still have people who are loving your game and you can address the feedback. So yeah, I've been playing Sea of Thieves for over a year, and I had to create a separate Twitter account because <laughs> I, lo- I love taking screenshots in games just in general. Right. But in this one, I took a lot of screenshots Yeah. and uh, took a lot of video captures of it and had to create a separate Twitter account just because I was doing so much of it on my main account. that I thought at a certain point, people are going to unfollow me or ignore me.
0: Oh, I know that Steve's post. Enough already. Enough with that
1: game. Uh. (laughs) But it it also kind of just reignited my interest in game design and really like involving the user in shaping the direction of a game. Like Mm -hmm. it almost didn't feel like games could do that. Like here's a game where, where every other player in the every other ship that I see in this war, pirate world is another player. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they're going to do. They don't know what I'm going to do. And it was just like my heart would get pumping, like yeah. i get goosebumps. like Adrenaline rush. <laughs> on every player in, encounter, it's like, what's going to happen here? And, you know, sometimes people would really surprise you in being friendly or offering to share treasure or help you or uh-huh. things like that. And you never see that in games. You don't see that. In video games, we as players have been taught that you see another player, you kill them on sight, right? Yeah, yeah. Years of that. So to see a game that was not doing that or that encouraged... A playstyle that was contrary to that was just super interesting, and yeah, you know, I played a lot of things uh, over (laughs) over the last year. I've still been playing Sea of Thieves, but yeah, I'm still into that one, and I think it's just a pinnacle of game design. Like it's just such an interesting case study. (laughs) Yeah, that speaks
0: a lot to the you know Rare being such an amazing developer and Microsoft you know, being smart to, to buy them and, and have the guts to stick it out. And um, that's a huge endorsement, right? Played it for that long. And uh, I have not played it. I'm embarrassed to say that, but the way you're talking about it and like, you know, what the other person going to do. And there's all those, you know, being in a boats and resource management. I, I just had a flashback to, to really date myself. television I had a game called Utopia, where it was like, there were two different islands and you had resource management and there were boats involved. And there was no AI, right? Because it was back in super olden times, but you would try and do your thing and you'd have to like talk to the player like, all right, don't screw with my ship. I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to, you know, look out for that hurricane, but let's be cool about this. And then all of a sudden it would turn into, you know, a gunfight and everyone would be, two of you would be doing different stupid things to each other. And there was that whole like, Huh. Kind of like I, I wanna do my thing and i want to try and trust the other person and you try and negotiate, you know, verbally, talking to that person with the controller in their hand and then all of a sudden it would just turn into melee. And um yeah, it was uh, uh, utopia. I'll have to put it in the show notes. But yeah, it was a classic game that I'm seeing here. Don Daglio did, which I'm trying to remember the the name of his studio. Yeah, Stormfront Studios has done tons of games. Um I didn't realize he'd worked on that, but yeah, that there was something about that was just the boats and the resource management and, and coming up with um, being cooperative or being antagonistic against the other player who was sitting 10 feet away from you and the shouting matches that may or may not ensue based on what they did. Yeah, it was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's such an interesting thing to think about like a design like Utopia, you know, couch co-op type of game and how different the experience can be when you're in the same room with somebody versus online. And I know that Nintendo gets bagged on a lot by like deciding not to have online in certain games. And recently I was playing a lot of Mario Party for the Switch with my daughter Mm -hmm. uh, and she loves it. And for years people had been saying, you know, they should make an online Mario Party. But I think part of games sometimes whether it's utopia or super mario party like sometimes the experience is you know sitting in the same room with somebody yeah. and playing and not having an online game where could be some you know, for,
0: you know somebody just out there causing grief and dropping f-bombs and you know it's, it's a more controlled environment and, yeah
1: yeah causing grief or like when you think about mario party like having to sit through somebody else's turn and exactly how long that takes mm-hmm. and let's say nobody else was in the room with you and you're playing by your yeah. By yourself against online opponents. Would that really be fun? Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Like, cause part of the experience there is you're in the same room and you could, you know, somebody, you know, steals your coins. You can, mm-hmm. you know, punch them in the arm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you doing? Pop. Yeah. Knock it off. I'm taking my game and going home. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Th- 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 and that is interesting. Like, yeah. Not every game has to be online, and, and there is that that human element. That it's a video game, but maybe it's a little bit of the board game element too, in the in the sense that you're interacting with people, and you're you have a controller, but it, it's not anonymous. It's not you know people are all over the globe playing, and and there is that that personal element to it. And um, yeah, it's cool you mentioned Nintendo and stuff. Shout out to my buddy J V. Johnny Vignacci and his recent announcement. Yeah, with Nintendo, so. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine, good dude. and
1: Old Midway. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, Old Midway. Yep, and i uh, super excited to see him in that role. But yeah, N- Nintendo really nails it sometimes when it comes to those kind of games and just that fun experience. And, you know, you think back to the Wii and how it got people into uh, gaming that may never touched a video game in their life, you know, playing with parents or grandparents, that um, there's something special about that versus just, you know, running around fragging people, like dropping F-bombs and stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Everybody gets a little something different out of video games. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. And sometimes it's easy to forget that. Right. There's like another audience. That's not you. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's not one path. And, and what I like, everyone else likes and everyone else be damned. This is, this is the only way you can do things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Kind of wrapping things up here. Is there anything I, you know, should have asked you about, but, but didn't like, want to talk about or excited about that, wasn't brought up in our conversation?
1: Uh, not really, no. I mean, as a fan of video games for a long time and uh, as a journalist, like after I got out of that, mm-hmm. I still loved talking about video games. And much like you have a podcast about game dev, I have a podcast also yep. that I do with some former gaming journalist friends uh, that I worked with. Years ago, right? right? We uh stayed in touch and we still talk every week about video games and been doing that now for almost 13 years. Man, that is very impressive. I'm familiar with the podcast, but I didn't realize it was that long you've been going, so yeah, yeah, we just finished up episode 658. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, one of our first episodes, I went to the launch evenings of the Wii and the PlayStation 3 and recorded interviews with people who were in the lines. Hmm. And (laughs) still funny to me to listen back to that. And uh, so many people who were in line for the PlayStation 3 were just ready to flip it on eBay. Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) It's just uh, an interesting time capsule to go back to some of those right old shows yeah <laughs> i'm just here and for was, the ebay man that's all it's about it's i'm just here exactly eBay. <laughs> so many people that were like that but that was before i, I at the time i was working at an anime magazine uh-huh. so it was before i started at adult swim but yeah i've been doing that and hopefully uh hopefully people like that i'm sure i'll point player 1 listeners to to this podcast as well just cuz i think mm-hmm. it's 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 always good i think for consumers to to hear developer opinions and right. just hear more about the development process like i think it's it's important to think about that cuz you think about things differently when you're a consumer versus when you're in development
0: right kind of in the belly of the beast and, and kind of hearing that perspective of Oh, they have deadlines they have to work with, and oh, there's you know these constraints, and um, yeah, being able to hear those yeah. kind of things is is always useful. Cool. And then um, yeah, you mentioned player one. Is there any like you know online website, other kind of stuff you want to talk about, um, just so I can we can direct
1: people to yourself? Sure. Mostly, I'm on Twitter. My handle there is superpac. S U P E R P A C. Okay. And I've, I've been under that handle since the early 90s. And, oh. you know, only now does it have political connotations.
0: <laughs> Who are you funding? What kind of money is being... Yeah,
1: right. exactly. <laughs> yeah, was way before but, that, uh, man. Yeah, basically on all the, all the services, I'm just super pack. Mm-hmm. So you find me there or, yeah, player1podcast.com for the podcast.
0: Yeah, no, and um, knowing what the level of effort and time and commitment and it takes to produce a podcast uh, firsthand, um, a lot of credit out to you for for having 600 plus episodes because it is a, a non-trivial amount of time and energy. And um, yeah, people should check out the podcast because that's that's great to hear.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's all about the passion, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, just like the <laughs> and- fan scene, right? You, you know, that's how it's exactly. Fun. Yeah, and for you, like talking with game devs, I'm sure is, you know, what you like to do and you Mm -hmm. want to share that with other people. And I think that's fantastic. That's what people should do. Like find that thing that you think is worth boosting and uh, do all you can to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thanks Chris for being on the show today. I I think we have some great information to share and I'll have all your contact information in the show notes and um, I'll be in touch. Awesome. Thank you so
1: much, John. This has been great.
0: Cool. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website, gamedevadvice.com. Com. I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas, since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care.